The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Simon Dixon, who's got a very dramatic uh, Who is Simon Dixon YouTube video I just watched, which, by the way, was very well done, done, Simon. But for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. What's your background? Have you got involved, interested in financial markets and Bitcoin in particular? And what are you doing currently? Yeah, sure. So well, I'm just a finance money geek. So I am my first, you know, I was working in investment banking. Decided to leave in 2006 to work on banking and monetary reform. Uh, went down that rabbit hole before Bitcoin was actually created. And we tried to create a full reserve bank, which we failed epically. You know, we were told by, tried to do it in the UK at the time, told by the Bank of England that you needed 60 million on reserves. You couldn't do full reserve. You had to put all the money with another bank and build on top of their systems. And it was just not possible to do what we wanted to do. At that stage, we sunk all our money into trying to build this bank and the, went deep in debt, actually, found and took my last bit of credit card debt and went to the first Bitcoin conference in the world, which was in Prague. And I spoke there and it turned out that they were building a solution that allowed for what we considered full reserve banking. So... I wrote a book, which was the first published book in the world to include Bitcoin Bank to the future, protect your future before governments go bust. And then we just started investing in the industry, bought my first Bitcoin at $3. And when that didn't, you know, didn't, wasn't in a position where I needed to sell. And so then we started investing in startups that couldn't secure any funding, Coinbase, Kraken, Bitstamp, Bitfinex, and pivoted the bank to actually be a funding platform for Bitcoin businesses. And so when none of these companies could get funding, we started working on securities law reform. And three years later, managed to get a securities license and have just been investing in the sector ever since and supporting the industry and just seeing it grow through every single Bitcoin cycle. And the thing that never should have succeeded did succeed and just been having a blast ever since. Take us through some of the initial reactions when you would... Talk about Bitcoin back then. You mentioned buying a three dollars going to the first conference ever on that. I got to assume that that conference did not have that many people there. But presumably, your your friends and colleagues, as you talked about it, were maybe a bit skeptical. Yeah, well, um, my thing was I was talking about banking before Bitcoin, and Bitcoin actually was a way of explaining banking better for me. So 
if you go back to my early YouTube videos, and I've been publishing the whole journey ever, ever since those early days. I've still got the recording of those conferences on my YouTube channel, Simon Dixon. But I was explaining there's three fundamental flaws in banking, which I covered in my book, which is that banks own your own money. They own your money. So when you deposit your money at a bank, they legally become the owner of your money. Secondly, they spend your money by allocating all the digital currency that they create where they're going to lend it. So if it's based upon real estate or it's based upon some other asset class, they get to dictate the flow of money because they create digital currency every time they issue a loan. And finally, that determines the money supply. So you end up in this crazy system where central banks are trying to manipulate or figure out what is the optimum interest rate in order to determine how much digital currency a bank creates every time they issue a loan. And so systemically, it's a Ponzi scheme. And I was looking for a way of describing that. And when I was used to give talks before Bitcoin, no one believed me when I said banks created money. They just thought you were an idiot or a conspiracy theorist or a whack job. And so when Bitcoin came along, it gave me a way of explaining the difference between Bitcoin and banking because I was able to explain to people, hey, Bitcoin is this thing that you actually own. You don't need a counterparty. You don't need a bank in the middle. And because of that, you can spend it peer-to-peer, person-to-person. It goes from one device to the other device, and there's a ledger recorded on the blockchain. And guess what? The money supply is completely fixed and can't change. And those that validate all the transactions are the ones that receive the scenerage income, which normally goes to either governments or banks, depending on whether it's digital or not. So Bitcoin gave me a way of describing banking. And the only reason I believed in it is because I realized when I was trying to create a bank, you couldn't do what Bitcoin did. And so that kind of took me seeing it from a different perspective. But yeah, I mean, you know, back in the early days, I used to just sit there, give, I'd give Bitcoin to anyone that would download a wallet. Um, if you came to one of my early talks, I've given away more Bitcoin than I can count. And uh, the best way to, to help people understand it was just to get them to download a wallet, give them some Bitcoin. And I'm sure a ton of those Bitcoins all got lost because no one valued it at the time. No one cared about it. But, you know, those were my favorite days because it was an aligned vision of there was only Bitcoin, there wasn't anything else. And we were all just there trying to take on the banks and build a system that would work and allow people to transact peer-to-peer. And it was just, um, yeah, it was a blast. How much do you think of the the Ponzi narrative, which obviously I agree with, is really just there because of the great financial crisis? Obviously, Bitcoin was born out of it. But, you know, when you had a government surplus, I don't know if the rhetoric or the narrative that it's a Ponzi system, that everything's fragile was there because you had a buffer. Yeah. So um, in the early days before the financial crisis, so I left my job in investment banking in 2006 to give lectures on monetary reform. And the community was just really geek, really small. We had Kucinich agreed to introduce a bill in order to make fractional reserve banking illegal. We put together a transition plan that involved in what was the equivalent of central bank digital currencies, which you have today. And the you know, the Ponzi, like one of my first interviews was with the guy that did that Money Masters documentary, Bill Still. So he interviewed me really early on before Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, I do believe that the financial crisis was the catalyst for people caring because my when I was giving presentations at the time, you know, I went from like 30 people in a room. The first Bitcoin conference was about 50 people in a room. And then as the financial crisis progressed, the talks went up to like 300, 400, and just more and more people. And then I did a documentary called 97% Owned. 
which is on Netflix. And that was really the pivotal moment. We were describing it and that got about 4 million views on YouTube. And then we realized that, that, that this is a narrative that people are interested in. And the great thing about Bitcoin is every time a new event happened, whether it was you know, the censorship during Wikipedia financial blockade, or whether it was you know, demonetization in India where people had to queue outside banks and turn their cash into digital currency because they were trying to actually get some of the tax on it. All of these events, they just led to new reasons for people to understand the rhetoric until you reach the point today where you have the 2023 US bank run crisis, where the level of financial education because of Twitter spaces and the speed at which things are happening is, I don't think we've ever had a more financially educated you know, pe- people just didn't debate these things. They weren't subjects that people cared about. And I experienced that firsthand. So okay, there's a couple of directions I want to go with that because I think it's it's an interesting point. So uh, yes, obviously people are much more financially educated, which you can argue maybe makes the market more efficient. We can debate that. But I am curious, given that you mentioned that the GFC was the catalyst, which again, we all know that was the case. Has it been surprising to you in at least the short term that Bitcoin hasn't done better in the context of the regional bank dynamic. You obviously saw it, you know, a move initially in mid-March. I was on a podcast myself saying this is like, you know, the Bitcoin maxi's wet dream, right? You have a bank run, you got a crisis in the banking system in the U.S. You know, you had a move and then kind of petered out. Now, I know all this is very short term, right? But let's face it, a lot of people do live in the short term when it comes to the FinTwit side of things. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on why or why not has has Bitcoin kind of not persisted its momentum? Is it really a bank crisis? If it's not, maybe that might explain it. But if it is, I would think Bitcoin should really you know surge and it just seems to be pausing a bit. Yeah. So firstly, I, I disagree. So I'm, I don't do short term at all. I've never traded. I had a real simple strategy, which was own more Bitcoin each month than the previous month. So the further the price goes down, the better. I, and I prefer that. I really prefer extended bear markets. They're my favorite times in Bitcoin. You get to accumulate more. People are building more. And you don't have the people that are just here for the dollars. And you have the people that are here for the Bitcoin. So those are always my favorite times to context. But I think the four-year cycle in Bitcoin has performed immaculately. And I do believe it will continue to perform, um, not financial advice. But and, and, know, and, and I'm sorry, just maybe for those that are not familiar, just explain what the four-year cycle is. Yeah, absolutely. So the monetary policy of Bitcoin is that... Um, those that run this process called mining, they validate all transactions. I don't want to go geeky into it. Some will under, some will have gone down the rabbit hole, others won't. But in a nutshell, you fire up originally a laptop, then it was some more sophisticated equipment, and now it's institutional-grade mining farms where they essentially you know, validate all transactions and a copy of every single transaction is stored on tens of thousands of nodes so that there's only one version of the truth. So you don't need a bank or a central bank. And the monetary policy stated that every 10 minutes, miners would random, you know, one miner would randomly be selected to receive 50 bitcoins. And then every four years, the number of bitcoins someone would receive every 10 minutes cuts in half. So we started in 2009. And then in 2013, we had the first halving. And it creates this four-year cycle whereby the supply is expanding at a smaller and smaller rate until it hits this finite supply of 21 million. 
And what we started to notice is that Bitcoin goes through a four-year cycle. And it's so far, it's persisted and prevailed ever since I've been involved. So the first cycle is what I call the centralization cycle. So originally, when Bitcoin was created, it was just Satoshi Nakamoto mining and sending some Bitcoins to Hal Finney. Um, and there, were, there was a bunch of geeks that were sending some Bitcoins to each other. And it was deeply centralized. He, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, he, she, they, whatever group, actually mines a million Bitcoins. And the process of trying to get it to not be centralized and decentralized really dominated the first cycle. And when it showed that you could actually have financial transactions in a decentralized way, it kind of passed its first test. Its second test, which was the second cycle, so that took it actually approximately, God, I I think it was like 123,000% returns if you went through that cycle. And then each four-year cycle, you get multiple thousand percent returns, but it goes down slightly each time as we hit higher and higher market cap. So we're still in the early adoption. So the second cycle is what I call where we had to survive legal crackdown. So, you know, there was a massive hack where 70% of all people that were trading Bitcoin had their Bitcoins on an exchange called Mt. Gox. When that got hacked, the Japanese regulators went, you know, berserk. US FINRA said that everybody's got to register these exchanges as money transmitters. And all the different regulators kind of had that choice of outlawing Bitcoin or allowing it to persist. And somehow it survived. And so that went through the second cycle. I think that produced approximately 21,000% returns to people that survived, that, that went through that cycle. The third cycle was what I call the token printing cycle. This is when everyone started to try and copy Bitcoin and say, hey, I can create a better version of Bitcoin, faster, cheaper, better, more secure. I can create my own blockchains. I can even launch tokens. And we had like 10,000 versions of coin and tokens and everyone creating pump and dump schemes. And there was one dangerous one, which is where you know very prominent members of the community and companies tried to take take over Bitcoin and say, hey, we're going to fork it, create a new version of it. And the old one's not Bitcoin. This one is Bitcoin. And that was a, a real survival thing we had to survive because if you could create a new version of Bitcoin and now there's 42 million Bitcoins, then it would really damage the fundamental reason why people were considering it digital hard sound money. But it survived that. It turns out that it's very, it was virtually impossible to replicate Bitcoin because the way it was created where no one cared gave it properties that no one to be able to repeat. So regulators then said these things are securities, they're not commodities. And then you had all these people just keep continually trying to you know, dilute the brand of Bitcoin and create all these alternatives. But it never succeeded. And there's only still one that is actually considered decentralized and commodity-like. Then you had um, the fourth cycle, which is throughout the whole history of Bitcoin, it was always created after the financial crisis in a quantitative easing cycle. So my big test for Bitcoin was could it survive inflation and quantitative tightening and rate hikes? Because it's, it's never been around in that environment. It went straight into QE. And so people started to trade it as a risk on asset. And therefore, if you end up in a stock market crash, do you also get a crash of Bitcoin? And it turns out that you do in the short term. But in the long term, the fundamentals of own your own money, spend your own money, and have a monetary supply that can be fixed 
prevails in the four-year cycle. And so we're about to end the, that fourth cycle. And I talk about two more big tests till we can actually classify Bitcoin. And the returns will diminish each cycle. So the earlier you believed, the higher the returns were. So the last one produced a 2,100% return, I believe. Don't quote me on the numbers. I have to go back and remember because I did all the calculations one time. But the next cycle is about surviving central bank digital currencies, which I believe is an attack on the banking system, not on Bitcoin. And then you have AI, which will probably power those central bank digital currencies in the future. And Bitcoin and blockchain will probably become a force uh, for being able to combat the centralizing power of artificial intelligence when it comes to these things. So these are all the tests. And the four-year cycle is essentially you hit new all-time highs and so far had, you know, over a thousand percent returns for holding throughout that in dollar terms. Expand on just, you know, the idea of a leverage cycle. So I, I'll preface this by saying I, I've used this line many times before that whether it comes to Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, stocks, commodities, everything has a certain commonality in overconfidence, right? At least in the near term. And I've used that line many times on Twitter. Overconfidence leads to leverage. Leverage leads to crashes. Now, you know, you can leverage up, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, you know, a significant amount. And, you know, that does at the margin, obviously push the marginal price to new highs for a moment in time. But how do you think about leverage when it comes to Bitcoin and its own cycles. It seems to me that unless you have limitations to how much levered fiat you can put into the space, it's hard to get volatility to really drop in a meaningful way, causing a lot of noise and a lot of angst. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Yeah, so let's look at the the last two cycles. So in, in cycle three, we had the money printing cycle. What we learned was that most people or a percentage of those that invested in pump and dump scams and, and you know, we had, for example, Telegram was launching their own token. The SEC decided to shut it down. But they brought in approximately, you know, over a billion dollars. And I think even I think the most crazy ICO of all time was uh, someone printed their own token, EOS, and they brought in about four billion dollars. Now, with all of those scams and all of those money printing and basically digital securities without the regulations and without the disclosures, crypto people tended to stay. And so what we found is that because we have Bitcoin and stable coins, People wanted to, once they'd onboarded into Bitcoin or crypto or a stablecoin, they, they didn't want to go backwards unless they absolutely had to. And so that was what we discovered in cycle three, that the market cap and the amount of liquidity in the space increases. And at the end of every scam cycle, everyone returns to Bitcoin or they exit because they were just looking for a quick buck and some more dollars. 
but you always end up with a higher number of people that discover Bitcoin is what this industry is about and what the world needs. Now, this cycle, the fourth cycle, was where we introduced leverage. So you had a bunch of scammers that created tokens in 2017. And what they did is they, you know, they introduced a lot of leverage into the system. Now, it started as what I thought was a very good idea. And it was a simple idea. You got a bunch of Bitcoin. You very rarely want to sell it. I certainly, you know, every time I earn fiat currency, I every single month convert a percentage of it into Bitcoin. And then I also have hedges because, you know, as you get older, you don't want to be fully exposed to one eventuality in the world. So I have hedges in case I'm wrong, but I put most of my conviction into Bitcoin. But what they did is they created services whereby rather than selling your Bitcoin, you could borrow against your Bitcoin. And there would be other people like um, Bitfinex, one of the exchanges that we invested in 2016. They created a service where those that wanted to you know, do margin, go short on Bitcoin or do margin trading, you could actually give, lend them your Bitcoin and share the interest. So they created this order book. And then other companies wanted to you know, build better user experiences on top of that. So they started to put together the people that wanted to borrow with the people that wanted to lend and receive yield. The problem was is that we recreated banking, but without any of the checks and controls, without any of the FDIC insurance. And they started to operate as hedge funds as well. So they, they, you know, one thing led to another. It was a simple peer-to-peer lending model. And then suddenly we introduced this massive leverage. And then to the point where a couple of hedge funds, like Three Arrows Capital, that just scammed everyone and then decided to launch their own exchange where you could buy and sell bankruptcy claims is what they're doing now. And another one, which was Sam Bankman-Fried with FTX, decided that they would you know, create a hedge fund, Alameda, and they would go around all these different platforms and borrow from them. So when you thought, and then all those platforms, they were all competing to each other to offer the best yield. And that led them to offering unsustainable yield to higher end risks. And essentially, we created a worse version of the 2008 financial crisis, which was just an awful moment for our industry. And I even got roped in. I had a, you know, approximately 1,000 Bitcoins on one of those platforms. I was actually implementing a hedging strategy where I was going to borrow against my Bitcoin and buy gold as a strategy. And I wanted the yield to pay for the interest. That blew up. I ended up a creditor in one of those platforms, Celsius. And when all the leverage blew up, it turned out that it was absolute scams, fraud. You know, people were using, you know, rather than, because there was no bank oversight, there was no, you know, Basel requirements. They were just simply using all your money for all sorts of craziness. There was multi-billion dollar holes and they were all overexposed to each other. And then they were lending to each other without being over collateralized, which broke the whole model. And we had the 2022, you know, crypto deleveraging cycle that brings us back to where we are, where a lot of the leverage is taken out. And yeah, that, that brings us to, and then obviously that had its impact on the 2023 um, treasuries and how that impacted the banking sector. Is, is, do you get a sense that the, the drawdown this time around was maybe more damaging from a institutional adoption perspective than people realize? I mean, I've... There was a lot of movement in the institutional space around Bitcoin as things were surging out of COVID. I get the sense that there might be sort of a almost like a behavioral finance snakebite effect, once bitten, twice shy type of dynamic where 
because the institution started getting more and more involved and engaged just as things were about to go through a drawdown, it might take some time and maybe longer than people realize to get the adoption, which I would think a lot of the you know real maxis want to see. Well, I saw a couple of things. Firstly, I saw all the crypto people wanting to convert to Bitcoin. I saw all the people that put their money in centralized platforms figure out how to create, you know, get a hardware wallet and figure out how to do self-custody. Every cycle that I've seen, it, there's always a disaster. So like Mt. Gox was when, you know, for example, when, when Mt. Gox went, well, the first one, when Mt. Gox went bust, it was over. It really felt like everything was over. And, you know, when uh, the Silk Road got shut down, that really felt like it was over. When Eric Voorhees got, you know, co contacted by the SEC for doing a Bitcoin IPO and creating, you know, a, gam a gaming site, these all felt like moments where everything was over. But in this cycle, every single cycle we've had, you know, you have more individual adoption. So prior to this, it was definitely retail adoption. But in the last cycle, you had like the Michael Sailors of the world that were doing conferences, bringing in all the corporates and people started using it for corporate treasury management. And you also had, you know, we tried in 2014 to make Isla Man use Bitcoin as legal tender, but they got threatened by the Bank of England and so therefore had to stop it. But El Salvador actually stood up to the Bank of England and the IMF and actually implemented it as Bitcoin legal tender. So you had sovereign management. And then you had the higher risk financial institutions that were finding, you know, that were, were getting into all of this. But they were all jumping into, you know, a lot of them were jumping into crypto. Some of them were going straight into Bitcoin. So it's a real mixed bag. Obviously, you had Facebook trying to create their, the largest bank in the world with the Libra project that was later bought by Silvergate. You had banks that were actually, we had sustainable banks that were, you know, providing banking services to exchanges. And so all of this infrastructure created, you know, larger and larger institutional adoption, sovereign adoption. And so when those all get burned, they go through the same cycle as everyone else. Some of them find Bitcoin, realize that all the rest is a bunch of shit and leverage. Some of them exit the industry and they come back once Bitcoin hit, hits record highs. Every time Bitcoin reaches record highs, you know, I get people that are contacting me. I get institutions. It, I, I went around the every single fund manager in approximately 2015. I was paid by Jeffrey's Investment Bank to speak to pretty much every fund manager that were managing most of the world, most of the world's, you know, a decent chunk of the world's money. And I explained to them Bitcoin. And it was actually Blythe Masters who was explaining why you shouldn't buy Bitcoin and you should be investing in blockchain. And she was doing the round and we were doing the same round. I was saying Bitcoin, she was saying blockchain. And, you know, you get people that adopt, you get people that get burnt and disappear, uh, and you get people that, that stay there and realize that, that actually Bitcoin is a thing. The difference this time around is you're going to have all those legacy financial institutions that are saying, right, it's time for the grown-ups to step in. We'll do this where centralized companies are done in a regulated way. But you still got, you know, BlackRock still has their um, funds that has to allocate a percentage of it to every public company involved in Bitcoin and blockchain. We had Coinbase that did the first IPO. We were early investors in some of their private equity rounds. Some of our other portfolio companies like Kraken, Circle, Ripple Labs, they were all exploring their IPOs. And so, yeah, you know, that's, uh, it, I just believe 
every time I see it, that you've got higher levels of adoption and a bunch of people that got burned and how they react to that. Do they react to that to realizing that Bitcoin is where it's at or do they leave? And you get a little mix of the, but they tend to come back later. Yeah, and, I, I, and to your point, I think there's certainly a lot more attention to it than before. I often rant against narratives and people think I'm anti-Bitcoin, not realizing that I actually want to see the space do well, but for the right reasons being not overconfidence, greed, leverage, but sort of the core purpose of what Bitcoin is ultimately about. But the uh, my point in referencing that is, you know, the performance went, you know, through the moon, through the roof, and then, you know, came back down. But, you know, there's still a lot of sticky money that's there. So you've had the sort of weak hand momentum chasers and then those that really understand and believe in the space. That's a plus, right, from a longer-term perspective. My my hesitation on a lot of the narratives here is that, as is often the case, it takes longer than people realize, and it tends to be much more costly to sort of go to the extreme of what Bitcoin can be for the system. And in the meantime, there's going to be all kinds of bumps in the road. So let's talk about, from that perspective, CBDCs a little bit more. Where are we on CBDCs? A lot of people have been talking about, it's only a matter of time to the Fed, Put something out there. We know they're working on something. I get the sense that the Fed may not actually go that direction for other reasons. But give us an update on sort of what you've seen from the central banks globally as as, as far as it relates to CBDCs. Yeah. So um, in my book, I dedicated a whole section to how you would use the governments will have to use a digital currency in order to remove fractional reserve banking at its extreme and how you do that without wiping out shareholder value. And so what happened in the 2023 side was a, an iteration of what I had covered in Bank to the Future in Protect Your Future for Gums Go Bust in 2011. And I started talking about central bank digital currencies in 2016 as what I believe to be inevitable, predictable and guaranteed. And so I believe that the only tool, maybe there's another round of two or three tools, but you know we've already seen during this cycle that whenever the Fed commits to, you know, the trying to combat the excessive money printing, you tend to get something that has to be pivoted eventually because of the side effects. And so I believe I subscribe to, you know, some of Ray Dalio's kind of cycle theory that many people would probably be familiar with. But I believe that a central bank digital currency is actually one of the most disruptive and inevitable, predictable and guaranteed forms of banking reform we will experience because essentially you could use a central bank digital currency. And I was saying they need to get their CBDCs ready for when banks fail and when you have the bank runs. Because the easiest way, rather than backstopping the whole system and re-leveraging, you know, and getting taxpayers to pay and the hidden taxes and everything they're doing right now, you could just openly say we are moving to a system where we let banks go bust. And rather than putting more leverage in the system in order to save the over-leveraged banks, we could use a central bank digital currency that's not backed by debt, that is actually just replacing debt-based money with debt-free money issued by a central bank. And people think, well, won't that be a massive increase in the money supply and inflationary? No, it's deflationary because you're just replacing one form of money with another. So imagine that you're at a bank, you're at Chase, and Chase is needing, you know, needing emergency measures. Um, you could just let the bank go bust and require everyone to download a digital wallet where they would find a CBDC balance equivalent to the amount that they had in their account. You could auction off all the debt as you do with any FDIC takeover, but you've taken out all of the debt that's backing the money at the bank 
and obviously replaced it with debt-free money that's issued by a central bank called a central bank digital currency. And I just think that's inevitably how you stop banks going, you know, bust in the future without depositors losing their money. And so if you look at it, uh, 90% of every central banks are now launching or developing or researching their central bank digital currencies. In 2025, the Bank for International Settlements has released how you can hold cryptocurrency and how you can use stable coins and central bank digital currencies at the central banking level. You've got the projects, you know, China started working on its central bank digital currency in 2014, picked up the project again in 2018 when Libra left out the Chinese yuan from the basket of currencies that they were going to use to back their, you know, their central, well, their digital currency that they tried to do at the corporate level. And they've, you know, they've already got it integrated with all the banks, they've got it integrated the whole of China has already disrupted cash with WeChat Pay and Alipay. It's integrated at that level. They've already got a line on their balance sheet that explains how much central bank digital currency makes up the total money supply. It's still under 1% of the money supply during the rollout phase. But they're also issuing Belt and Road Initiative loans, exploring using that if you want to get a loan in Chinese yuan, then you have to also adopt our central bank digital currency. So it's going at a really fast rate. And it, to me, is the, it's the only final tool. It comes at a massive cost. Don't get me wrong. The cost is freedom, privacy, liberty. And, but I think we ended that when we decided to roll over these Ponzi schemes through every financial crisis and when America gave up on free markets and the rest of the world followed. Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Simon Dixon here on Twitter. If you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, I will have this as a podcast. By the way, I know, Simon, you do a number of very large Twitter spaces. I tend to run these more, as you can tell, like a, a one-on-one podcast. But if anybody wants to come up, you know, feel free to engage. I want to get your take on where we are in the other cycle. Uh, we talked about the four-year cycle, the leverage cycle. Maybe all that's tied to the crypto bankruptcy cycle. Do you think that SBF, with hindsight, maybe marked the end of the blowups, or do you get a sense that there's still more damage that's coming? Yeah, it's um, it's so. Firstly, it's a it's a political question, it's a regulatory question, and it's also just uh, you know. A, a, so there's several more where we don't know the outcome yet. Um, one of those is finance. One of those is Tether and Bitfinex. And full disclosure, I'm a shareholder in Bitfinex. I'm a shareholder in Circle. I'm a shareholder in Coinbase. I'm a shareholder in over 100 different companies across the industry. I try not to let that change the way I share things, but I just try and disclose that just so people know when I'm saying things. And so there's, you know, Tether has essentially created this in- incredible business model which has both risks and, you know, uh, and threats to what the U.S. want. And so that creates a very challenging environment. You know, Tether has approximately, you know, during, during the bank run crisis, its volume when, you know, the U.S. regulated version of a stablecoin, USDC, uh, when that suffered because it was using a U.S. bank and it had about $3 billion in, I think it was Silicon Valley Bank, or it was, I can't remember whether it was Signature or Silicon Valley, actually. It's all moved so fast. That drove a lot of volume over to Tether. So it went up from approximately 
60 billion to about 85 billion now back in that stable coin, which is where you give your dollars to Tether and they don't pay you any interest because they provide a stable coin that has massive utility because you can send dollars around the internet person to person as if it were Bitcoin, which is something very useful if you're either an arbitrage trader or you live in a country that's suffering hyperinflation and you want to get access to dollars, but you can't get a dollar bank account. It's got several very useful things, but they get 0% interest money and then they got to buy all of the higher rate treasuries. And so they were pulling in billions of dollars of profits and the excess profits they were using in order to buy Bitcoin. And so they ended up in this cycle with like 50,000 Bitcoin that essentially the US government was subsidizing through treasuries and creating dollars that exist outside the US banking system that were incredibly useful to those that couldn't access dollars. You know, so that's a very threatening model. It's confrontational. And so you've also got that, you know, the outcome of that. Regulators, I mean, obviously, you know, it's been a target with DOJ for a long time. That's not going to be happy, but they also haven't managed to take it down yet. On top of that, there's also Digital Currency Group, which, you know, they were involved in some of the massive leverage between FTX, Three Arrows Capital, the multi-billion dollar holes. They were on the receiving side through some of their subsidiaries, which then connected to the Winklevoss twins through Genesis and Gemini. These are still unresolved. And FTX is going after Binance for like 2.1 billion. They're going after Digital Currency Group for about 4 billion. You know, Celsius and FTX, they were deeply intertwined because Alex Majinski created a pump and dump scheme in order to fill, his, fill a hole and hide the multi-billion dollar losses he made and extract massive value and theft and fraud from creditors. He pumped the price of a token that he all did through FTX. And there's a subpoena to get all that data right now of what was happening during the massive fraud and manipulation. And so you still got a bunch of shit to figure itself out probably for the rest of this year. I mean, the FTX one's going to go on for quite some time. But those are like the three unknowns. Um, Those, we need to figure out their outcome. But from my perspective, again, if you're playing the game, a simple philosophy, which is my philosophy, I believe that there will be a demand for more people to own their own money in a way where they can do it without a counterparty. I believe that there will be a demand for people to transact peer-to-peer with less censorship, but a compromise where there's an immutable record on a blockchain in case you're committing crime with that, that law enforcement can follow into the future. And I believe that people will want a money supply that they can rely upon that never changes and is fixed and creates digital hard sound money. If you believe in that, then I also believe that if you own more Bitcoin every single month than the previous month, then you are accumulating digital hard sound money that I believe will be very infinitely more useful and people will pay a lot more dollars for into the future. And so that's, you know, play the four-year cycle. If you want to play the whims of every up and down, every ebb and flow, this industry is wild. There's a lot of leverage in there because the hedge funds have a lot of volatility to play with. I want the price to be as low as possible for as long as possible because I believe that the demand for that, you know, goes up over time. And obviously, there's an element of risk there because we've been only been at this for 14 years. 
whereas gold's been at this for 5,000 years, which is why the returns have been asymmetric relative to other stores of value that preserve your wealth like gold. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So that actually brings up an, another dynamic. There is a lot of passion <laughs> in the Bitcoin community, and I think that's a positive. I also think that in some ways it can be damaging, just from a perception perspective, right? Because if, and I'm sure Simon, you've seen this, Greg, I'm sure you've seen this too. You know, passion brings out a lot of positive emotions, but also a lot of negative emotions that ends up getting into sort of uh, argumentative types of yelling and screaming, I'm right, you're right, you're wrong, whatever it be. And I get the sense that there needs to maybe be a bit of a transition away from emotional takes on Bitcoin to, you know, kind of more rational back and forth conversations, which I know happen, right? But it's the loudest that tend to get the most attention, arguably. But, but so some, I want to get your take on that point, because I, I do think yeah. this, this, this is the way... So look, I... I I was attacked by the Maxi mob in like February 2021 when everybody was putting laser eyes, right? And I was trying to have discussions with people, but it was very kind of argumentative and insulting. And I think that's more just sort of greed and overconfidence. So maybe it's not fair to just isolate it to that because you can say that around uh, Tesla <laughs> Maxis. And I've used that line before, when an investment becomes religion, it's time to lose faith. But the, where I'm really going with that is, do you get a sense, Simon, that the emotional aspect of the communication to point the way that it's delivered, that's going to abate because I think that's the only way you can really bring in more people to believe in Bitcoin as opposed to I'm right, you're wrong, the whole system is fucked, so you got to buy Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting topic. And, you know, again, my most favorite time in Bitcoin was when there was only Bitcoin and it was just us versus the banks and we were like the annoying little fringe project on the side that would that was never meant to succeed everyone was laughing us you know much like some new bloody meme coin or something that comes along but that was my favorite time and there is no doubt in my mind that bitcoin is a religion and you know the the similarities between how people feel about bitcoin and how people feel about religion are, are, are there there's no doubt about it bitcoin means so much to me because it just it just did so much for me in my life. So I, you know, I can't help but see things from the world of a Bitcoiner. But at the same time, I very deliberately concentrate on questioning my narratives very deliberately and try on for size, you know, the arguments of other people and understand that being wrong is a part of being a good investor as well. So everyone picks, you know, the type of person that they like to listen to. There's more over-aggressive, there's more toxic maximalist, there's more comical, there's more down-to-earth. People just pick who's right. But I'll tell you how I deal with it. So firstly, I split the world up into three. And I believe that there is an existing empire, there's a change of empire, and there's a system outside the, fin the current financial system. And so the way that I've managed to achieve balance in my life is I, for two decades now, have believed 
the the entire US retail, you know, real estate market is due to crash, due to implode, you know, a bit of a Peter Schiff type narrative. And you can go broke betting against the Federal Reserve, trying to wait for what is probably right to happen. And I've experienced that over the last two decades. And so I believe, because I believe that the future of the US banking system and the current empire will roll over into a CBDC and they'll give up on capitalism, freedoms, liberties, and take away people's privacies, freedoms, and transition to, you know, when I look at the world, I think China looks more like America every day and America looks more like China every day. That's that's the world that I see from a non-Chinese, non-American that spent a lot of time living in Hong Kong and spending a lot of time visiting America and visiting China and speaking and having many friends in those different areas and business partners in both jurisdictions. And so that's, you know, I see a world of don't bet against the Federal Reserve. So I have my traditional US dollar portfolio. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very conservative thing. It rarely beats inflation. But that's my, you know, that's my portfolio. It's your traditional stock and bonds. Use low-cost index funds. And just 101, you know, investing, as it were. I also have a portfolio for, I believe in my lifetime, there will be a change of empire. And I believe during that change of empire, if it leads to, you know, wartime, where no one trusts each other's fiat currencies, then traditionally people have cleared in gold and gold becomes the only thing that people can trust when settling with each other. So I have gold. And that's based upon one day, this whole freaking internet thing, Everything could go down the satellite, you know, the doomsday scenario. But I still want to be okay in that scenario. And so you've got to get the right balance between self-custody and physical custody and not using paper and leverage because the gold doesn't exist. That's backing up all those paper claims. But the one portfolio that has changed my life radically and has given me more freedom and prosperity and allowed me to do everything that I want in my life is the Bitcoin side. And I'm not such a, I believe that Bitcoin has a monopoly on digital hard sound money. I don't think that the set of circumstances that made Bitcoin a commodity will happen again. But I do also believe that there is some other types of innovation that comes from this sector as a whole. So I'm, you know, I put 5% of my Bitcoin in the Ethereum ICO and I've still got those tokens and I'm more than willing to mess around with a percentage of my Bitcoin in order to try and generate more Bitcoin because I have a simple I have a simple model that I need more Bitcoin every month than I had the previous month. And that's just my, the foundation of my Bitcoin approach and strategy. You can either buy it or you can invest it. And and but also that's blown up a lot of wealth for me. You know, I had almost approximately, if you take it across the different coins, about a thousand Bitcoin in Celsius. That's a very embarrassing thing because I was experimenting with not selling the Bitcoin and that cost me a lot of that that cost me a lot. But overall, I was also a shareholder in about 10, 10 unicorns of a hundred companies that went from you know million, ten million dollar valuations to multi-billion dollar valuations. And so it, it kind of balances out. And I don't know how, you know, people just tend to stick to one narrative. And I just don't like, I, I reached an age when I was younger, I was more than happy to do that. But you reach an age when, you know, risk management matters. And the worst thing, the reason I saw a lot of people, so I know people that were at that first Bitcoin conference that are still in the same financial position, despite being involved in the highest performing asset class in history. 
And that is because they overtraded, they didn't do risk management, or they had to sell their Bitcoin in order to meet their living expenses. And so these are real things that you have to manage. And balance is the only way to do that. But I really take your point. You know, it's a crazy world out there, but isn't that just the world in general? That's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Uh, Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Simon Dixon. Check out his Twitter space as well. Simon, for those that are not on Twitter listening to this as a podcast, how do people find you? Uh, Sure, yeah, thanks for that. So uh, just on Twitter is best way blessed by spend far too much time there. I've got a YouTube channel, Simon Dixon. And for those that want to invest in this industry, we run banktothefuture.com, which is mainly for high net worth investors that want to build more Bitcoin every month, basically. Thank you, Simon. Appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.